CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond. This episode is sponsored by ErisX.com, the Stellar Development Foundation, and Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. The Breakdown is produced and distributed by Coindesk. Here's your host, NLW. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Wednesday, May 27th, and quick announcement, guys, right before we dive into a really, really exciting conversation with Matt Ridley, author of the new book, How Innovation Works. I wanted to share that I am experimenting or about to experiment with some interesting additional content, bonus content, VIP content, both written and podcast form that I really want a set of beta testers to help me out with. So if you are interested in beta testing a bunch of unique content around the same themes of the breakdown as a a supplement, as an extension of the breakdown, DM me at NLW on Twitter and let me know, or email me NLW at Whittemore.io and I will get you in this beta test for June. But without any further ado, let's talk about my interview today. Matt Ridley is an extremely interesting thinker. You may know him from his TED Talk from 2010, When Ideas Have Sex. You may know him from his book, The Rational Optimist, How Prosperity Evolves. You may have read his more recent book, The Evolution of Everything. If you follow British Parliament, you may know him as a member of the House of Lords. But in this context today, I'm having a conversation with him as the author of the new book, How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. And the conversation is really about the way in which innovation has been treated historically as some emergent phenomenon that just happens, rather than as something that can be understood and cultivated in explicit ways. And Matt spent a huge amount of time in this book digging into figuring out how innovation actually works and why it is so essential to the evolving prosperity of the human species. We cover a huge amount of ground in this conversation, from the idea of this economic history of innovation, to how Thomas Edison created the first innovation factory and was not the inventor that we think of, but actually perhaps the first modern innovator. We talk about how governments can and can't encourage or incentivize innovation and what works and what doesn't. We talk about how innovation actually and innovation policy influence Matt's views on Brexit. And finally, we talk about how in the context of the COVID-19 crisis, what the state of innovation is and what new opportunities might come up. So I really enjoy this conversation. I hope you do as well. As always, when we do interviews that are long form like this, we edit it only very lightly. Let's dive in. 
All right. I am here with Matt Ridley. Matt, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Nathaniel, it's great to be talking to you. So I'm really excited for this. I've been uh, I've been following your works for for quite some time. Um, I, I was trying to remember back. I was not actually at uh, TED Global when you gave the the uh, when ideas have sex presentation. I was at the next TED Global, and I had been at uh, Oxford for a different conference the the a couple months before that. But you know that that really caught my attention, and I read the Rational Optimist, and have been enjoying that the evolution of these ideas. And so we're here today to talk about innovation and and your new book uh, about innovation. Innovation, but first, by way of getting it started, what made you want to write this book in particular right now? Well, I've been thinking for a long time that innovation is the sort of the the, the big theme of humanity uh, for the last few thousand years. Um, that understanding it is important, and I've touched on it in my book, The Rational Optimist, which was uh, about the fruits of innovation in a way. And I've touched on it in the evolution of everything, but I've never actually sat down and said. What is innovation and how does it work? Uh, and the more I think about it, the more uh, I think it's rather amazing that people haven't written more on this topic because innovation is such an important part of our lives and is so crucial to how we got here and it's crucial to how we'll get out of here in terms of the pandemic and things like that. Um, uh, and yet it's a somewhat mysterious subject. Nobody can really tell you why it happens when and where it does, why it dries up in some sectors and takes off in others, uh, and then does the opposite at a different time. Um, uh, nobody can really give you a plan for how to make it happen. Sure, we know some of the ingredients, um, but there's an awful lot of nonsense talked about innovation as well. So I thought it would be fun to tackle it head on as a topic. And then I had the idea of doing it as a series of stories where you tell the story of the steam engine, you tell the story of the search engine, and you draw uh, lessons out of those stories. So I've had a lot of fun uh, doing that over the last couple of years. Yeah, it's really fascinating to me. I do feel like we have these moments where we realize that uh, it's almost a, a fish trying to explain what water is type of thing, where something is so ever-present in our lives that we haven't actually uh, studied it as a discipline, right? And uh, you know, one of the things that was fascinating for me reading the book, uh, I come from a history background. Did you ever kind of piece together why it was that this the innovation has been missing in economic theory? throughout history um, yes I mean uh, the, there's a there is interesting thinking on this that if you look at economic history starting with Adam Smith Adam Smith talks about two somewhat contradictory ideas one uh, is the idea that if we if we all exchange and specialize we will eventually get more and more efficient at everything and we will uh, drive out the inefficiencies in the world until we reach equilibrium where we're all uh, we've found the perfect solution as to how to, to work for each other. And that implies that growth disappears. Growth growth dries up, um, uh, as it were, you know, that we run, we reach a sort of perfect equilibrium. It, it, it implies diminishing returns. But the other Adam Smith story is that there's a pin factory in which um, because people are specializing, they, they get better at the tasks they're doing and they invent new devices to make them even better at the tasks they're doing. So there are increasing returns. And for most of economic history, economists 
um, were obsessed with decreasing returns, diminishing returns. They they saw, they assumed that you know this burst of growth would come to an end, that we would run out of new ideas, new technologies, and that just kept not happening. I mean, right up until the 1930s, Keynes is still saying, "Well, we might have hit you know the end of of, of innovation." Some people are saying that again today, but in fact, we've had ever increasing returns because of ever increasing innovation, and economists suddenly realised as late as the 1950s, really, we don't actually have a theory about innovation. We just assume it's an exogenous external thing that happens to the economy, and we have the fruits of it. Uh, Paul Romer then got the Nobel Prize for trying to turn that around and saying, no, innovation is itself a product. It is the result of what we do, um, uh, as well as the input to what we do. Um, And so, uh, you know, economists have begun to get innovation into their equations, but they haven't really succeeded yet. Yeah, and it seems so fundamental. I mean, can how hard, how impossible is it to model out or predict economic outcomes when you don't have a way to take uh, expected innovation into account? Right. I, I mean, especially when so many of uh, so many issues in the economy are going to be based largely on changes in productivity and what different types of innovations do as it relates to uh, you know uh, needs for inputs and quality and quantity and types of outputs. Yeah, I mean, I like to give the example of the price of light. I mentioned this um, first in in Rational Optimist, but uh, you know, there've been calculations done as to how many hours you had to work in order to afford a given quantity of light, um, uh, and uh, what what you, today you would have to work about a third of a second to get an hour of light from a normal lamp, um, but. Uh, in 1800, uh, with the then cost of candles and the then average wage, you'd have had to work about six hours to get an hour of light of the same quantity. And that's a beautiful example of how something has gone from being a unaffordable luxury available only to the few to something that is a routine necessity that we all take for granted. Um, and that's because of innovation. You know, that's because we've replaced the candle with the kerosene lamp, which has been replaced with the light bulb, which has been replaced with the um, uh, compact fluorescent bulb, which has now been replaced with the light-emitting diode. Um, uh, so, you know, and, and yet, you know, the, the, your labor, what you're spending your labor on um, – uh, has changed in that time. In the past, if you wanted light, you had to spend a good percentage of your day working to get light. Now you have to spend a third of a second um, working to get light, so you can spend the time working for something else. So this is a, you know, this is economic growth—the reduction in the amount of time you have to spend fulfilling a certain need—and um, that you can't leave the story of innovation out of that process. It seems extraordinary that that you would think you could. You know, that hasn't come about because we've got more land or more labor. It's come about because we've got new technologies. You know, it's 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 really interesting. I, I think that the the light example has uh, a lot a, a lot of p- parts to play in this story, um, which I, I I feel like we'll come back to throughout this conversation. Uh, I, I want to start maybe with the the Thomas Edison example and this question of how innovation differs from invention, uh, and and these kind of inflection points in the history of innovation because I think that's such a, a phenomenal example. But I also, and I'm mostly reminding myself, I want to come back to this idea of how 
much less work it takes to get uh, light now compared to how much more time uh, it takes, how much more work it takes to own, you know, one index share of the S and P five hundred. Because there's an interesting conversation starting around the competition between technology deflation through inflation, uh, or sorry, through innovation and the sort of inflationary economic policies that keep asset prices, some would say, artificially large. But but I, I want to come back to that because it's a right. little a, a little ahead, yeah, uh, a little ahead. But but so let's talk about this this idea of light. So uh, <laughs> one of the more uh, this I think it's a a resonant example for for folks because we have the metho- uh, the mythology of Thomas Edison as the kind of inventor of of the light bulb in some ways, but it, it really wasn't invention per se. Could you share just a little bit about that example and maybe this idea of a, of an innovation factory and what that did for for innovation kind of uh, writ large? Yeah. Yeah, well, Thomas Edison wasn't the only person to invent the light bulb. In some ways, he wasn't the person to invent the light bulb. There are 21 other different people with uh, the – no, sorry, 20 other different people with the uh, with a good claim to have invented the light bulb independently. There was Lodigan in Russia, there was Swan in Britain, uh, and many others. And the point was the technology was ripe. It was ready to go. Um, the, combined, the technologies you needed to combine to make a light bulb would reach the point where it was inevitable someone would do it. You can't stop the light bulb being invented in the 1870s, basically, in that sense. Um, so Edison, perhaps, therefore, in a sense, doesn't deserve the credit he gets. But in another sense, he jolly well does deserve the credit because what Edison did was uh, take the basic prototype and turn it into something reliable, affordable, and long-lasting, which his rivals didn't do. Um, so he, uh, you know, produced the first light bulbs that would last a long time. Uh, and that you could genuinely rely upon. They didn't just blow up after a few hours. Uh, And the way he did that was by what I would call innovation, not invention. And that is to say a huge amount of trial and error. And he emphasized this very, very clearly. Uh, He did over 5,000 different experiments before he settled on the plant material to use for the the filament of his light bulbs, which was Japanese bamboo. Um, So uh, he famously said, invention is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Um, So, uh, you know, I would say that innovation is the perspiration, as it were, uh, and he understood that. And he then, uh, you know, he didn't, it, it wasn't just him, it was a whole team of people. And in fact, what he had done was he'd set up a factory a huge plant, the product of which was innovations. Um, you know, he the, the job of the people working in his factory was to produce changes in technologies uh, that could then be made into products that other people could buy and sell. Um, he was the first person, therefore, I think, to see innovation as a product uh, rather than as an input. And actually, there's not enough people who do that today. Yeah, you had this great line, the industrial revolution revolution, therefore was in effect the emergence of a new kind of economic system that generated endogenous innovation as a product in itself, which I thought was just a really great way to put that that idea. Yeah, I I, I do think that is is key. Uh, And of course, it depended on uh, abundant energy because uh, I have this sort of thermodynamic view of civilization in my book, which is that uh, we as living beings and our technologies are improbable structures 
and the way we make improbable structures, you know, we're far too ordered. You know, we, we, we're not random enough uh, for the universe. And the way you make something non-random uh, is by putting energy into it. Um, that's essentially what the second law of thermodynamics says. Um, so uh, it, it's, the, the more energy you made available to civilization, the more innovative improbabilities you could produce. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. As a, as an aside, uh, I think that concept would find a lot of resonance with uh, many in the Bitcoin community who see the proof of work system that Bitcoin re- relies on as a way of converting energy into uh, effectively truth, right, and a source of of shared common knowledge. That's kind of the the, the predicating basis of it. Um, I but I, I want to that, but that's a really interesting point, and and. I mean, it's often seen as one of the, the flaws of Bitcoin is the uh, huge amount of energy it requires. But, but in a sense, it's just spelling out what is inevitable: is that if if there's going to be something that valuable, then it must have a lot of energy input. Yeah, exactly. And I think that a lot of the there's there's a number of different counter arguments to the to the kind of strict energy interpretation, which is I think classically maybe the most common uh, the most common critiques you hear are one, it's used for crime; two, it's the the amount of energy; and uh, and three, just it's you know it's unstable or it's a bubble or something like that. And I think on the energy argument, there you know there's there's a lot of interesting things happening in terms of capturing lost energy. Uh, there's new companies being set up now to capture. Uh, energy that would otherwise have to be vented off at you know a natural gas because it can't go anywhere fast enough, uh, and inputting that into Bitcoin mining. But I think that the other argument is is a little bit more basic, which is you know people and individuals and societies get to choose to what they deploy you know their energy for. And you know if if we decide that Christmas lights are okay, why not decide that this uh, this kind of truth system, this this money system, might be okay as well? But I, I don't want to I, I don't want to drive us too far down that tangent. Uh, just some some. Some red meat from my from a Bitcoin friends, um, but I, I want to go back to a point uh, that that I think was really uh, you almost breezed over, but is so important. You said something to the effect of just a minute ago in the 1870s, the light bulb was getting invented no matter what, or you, you said it more eloquently than that. Uh, and it gets to this idea that you that you posit in the book that innovation is inexorable. Can you describe just a little bit about what that means? Yeah, well, it obviously can't be the case that everything is inevitable because otherwise. It would have all happened a long time sooner, if you like. But nonetheless, when you look at the history of technologies, you find that almost every technology uh, comes into being in two rival forms or more. Three, four, five different people rushing to the patent office saying, I've invented that. No, I've invented that. And um, uh, and this phenomenon of simultaneous invention is so striking that uh, actually as long as the 1920s, people were, were writing out lists of you know all the people who, who had rival claims to the thermometer or the whatever it might be. And there are always lots of them. And why is this? I mean, it's almost as if there's something in the air. The light bulb is a very extreme example. As I said, there are 21 different people who have a good claim to having thought this idea up independently. Um, But if you bring it forward to today and to a more recent example, you can see what's happening, I think. And that example is the search engine. The search engine was invented in the 1990s to help us all navigate the internet. And it was, uh, you know, we think of it as, being born out of Google, but of course, Google wasn't the first. There were lots of other search engines around when Google came along. It just was one of the best. 
And none of the people who built those early search engines, most of them didn't think they were building search engines. They thought they were cataloging the internet or something like that. That's what the Google founders thought they were doing. Um, So they didn't see what they were doing. In retrospect, it looks so inevitable. Um, You know, it doesn't matter whether Sergey Brin meets Larry Page or not. We still get search engines in the 1990s. Um, uh, You know, you can't stop it. You can't prevent it happening. Uh, And so it must surely have been predictable. But it's not, actually. If you go back to the late 1980s and search for evidence that people were foreseeing the arrival of search engines, they didn't any more than they foresaw the arrival of light bulbs in the 1870s. So there's something strangely asymmetric about the history of technology. It's fantastically obvious in retrospect and fantastically non-obvious in prospect, um, which I find uh, completely fascinating. I think the way I would put it is that once a particular combination of technologies come together, then the next step of combining them is inevitable and inexorable. But that doesn't mean that every step in the history of technology is inexorable and inevitable. Support for this podcast and this message come from ErisX. With ErisX, you can trade spot and regulated futures on cryptocurrencies through a licensed U.S.-based exchange. ErisX believes in fair access for all. Sign up today to take advantage of zero fees and learn more at erisx.com slash consensus. This episode is also sponsored by the Stellar Foundation. The Stellar Network connects your business to the global financial infrastructure. Whether you're looking to power a payment application or issue digital assets like stablecoins or digital dollars, Stellar is easy to learn and fast to implement. Start your journey today at stellar.org slash coindesk. Our final sponsor is Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. In times like these, diversification is key. Consider Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund, ticker symbol GDLC. It's the only publicly traded investment product that offers diversified exposure to large cap digital currencies, all from your brokerage account. For more information, visit grayscale.co slash coindesk. That's G-R-A-Y scale dot C-O slash coindesk. This is another great point from the book is we, in addition to not having kind of cogent theories for the economics of innovation or re- really how it works, we also speak kind of monolithically about it, right? We talk about innovation as though, you know, whether you think it's on the upswing or the downswing, we speak about it as, as an entire category when it's it's sort of important to pierce out where are people innovating at any given time and why. And I mean, I guess when I say where, I mean both, uh, you know, in, in terms of what context, what industries, what technologies, but also there is a, a geographic where, historically speaking as well. Um, what, what did you notice about the patterns of innovation across you know the the 20th century uh and just kind of where where bringing us up to the the state of innovation today yeah well i i, I think that innovation is a surprisingly localized phenomenon i mean when you think how much civilization there was in the world how many different uh you know countries with cities and trade and ships and all this kind of thing nonetheless at any, I can I can take you back to any point in history in the last thousand years and say this is the innovative part of the world, much more than everywhere else. You know, in the nineteen eighties, it would be California. In the eighteen nineties, it would be London. Um, in the seventeen 
in the 1600s, it would be the Netherlands. Uh, in the 1500s, it would be Italy. Um, in the in the 1000s, it would be Fujian in China, um, and so on. Um, and why is this? Why is this bushfire burning so brightly in one place at any one time? Um, and it must be something to do with the confluence of trade and immigration and freedom, the freedom of people to do what they want, uh, to do experiments, to invest, to make mistakes, to change course, all these kinds of freedom uh, that come together in one place at, at one time and create the ecosystem in which innovation flourishes. And, you know, obviously we look at California and say, yeah, and of course, once this was happening in Silicon Valley, everyone went there if they were that kind of person. So it did attract people from elsewhere, and there must be a degree of that too. Um, it doesn't seem to last very long either. You know, these places burnt very brightly for a while, but uh, no longer do so um, in most cases. And it looks like the bushfire has shifted in recent decades from California to China. China is doing innovation in certain areas, digital, AI, biotech, at a faster rate now than uh, California is, I would guess, if you look at the way Chinese consumers you know, pay for meals and taxi cabs and things like that. They're sort of way ahead of, of uh, Americans now. Um, uh, now, that might be misleading. It might be that, 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 that it's not as innovative as I think, but that, that's my guess. And that feels weird because China doesn't feel free enough to be the sort of place where this should be happening. And I think what's happened is that for a brief while, China, although it had a Communist Party regime which allowed absolutely no freedom in democratic terms, it nonetheless allowed the entrepreneur a considerable degree of freedom down at the bottom of society where he wasn't being bothered by petty rules and regulations about whether or not he could put up a factory or design a new widget. Um, and that period may be coming to an end, given how extraordinarily authoritarian the regime now is compared with 10 or 20 years ago in China. Uh, so I, I think you know the, the moment may be already passing. Well, this is a really interesting point, I think, and the China example being a, almost potentially an exception that proves the rule in, in some ways, where you know effectively it feels like a lot of a lot of the the, the positing of the the book as it relates to freedom is that if innovation is the byproduct of uh, tinkering, experimentation, people and ideas coming into contact with one another, those are uh, hallmarks of free societies, right? Where uh, government more or less gets out of the way of people and lets them do things. And uh, and certainly you have a, a an ongoing tension and balance as it relates to uh, to, to kind of freedom and regulation um, that is uh, is always always competing right in the U.S. That's yep. one of the interesting things about the the software movement is that it had comparatively less regulation, so it was allowed to do a lot of things. Where that seems to be closing now, as we see just how powerfully influential in society these social media platforms are. But the interesting thing about China is that. Uh, 
the the strange version. I mean, it, it is a different type of authoritarian than we've seen because basically they they made a bargain right with their people that said economic growth and uh, an improvement in your life for for your freedoms, right? Effectively, I mean, it's obviously more complicated than that, but that is more or less the the base case. And so, in that context, you have to incentivize innovation to get the economic growth that you want. Uh, right. In fact, you have to incentivize innovation when you can't get traditional economic growth because you know maybe you don't have traditional economic growth, but at least you have the convenience of new mobile apps. And we see this played out even now in the blockchain industry, where China is investing a huge amount of money to be perceived as the leader in that to attract business that wants to uh, be interested in that space, regardless of whether it will be a thing. It might be a bridge to nowhere, but it's uh, it, it's interesting. I think in that it shows um, it, you know th- there's such an intentional bargain for the economic growth that innovation brings uh, contra freedom. But you know if if that declines, I think in some ways it might reinforce the point even more. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I didn't know that they were pushing into blockchain to the to the extent that you describe. Of course, blockchain has the potential to enable the innovative ecosystem to cast loose from planet Earth and float up into the cloud and conduct a, a process of innovation that doesn't have to be anywhere, that doesn't have to be subject to uh, the intellectual property regulations of California or the uh, democratic constrictions of China. Um, that sounds fairly hand-wavy and idealistic, and I suspect it is too much so. And by the way, one of the things I talk about in the book is the way technologies disappoint in their first decade after being invented, um, only to flourish later on. This is called Amara's Law. Roy Amara said, uh, every new technology, um, we underestimate the impact of a new technology in the long run, but we overestimate it in the short run. And we've seen this with everything from you know, railways, which were invented in the 1820s. But in the 1830s, they kind of didn't achieve much. But it's in the 1840s when suddenly there is railway mania and everybody builds thousands of lines and it becomes a routine thing. And we saw it with the internet. You know, we had e-commerce in the 1990s and we had all the dot-coms. And then by the end of the 1990s, everyone is saying, is that all there is? You know, I'm not sure this is all it's cracked up to be. Uh, And then, of course, 10 years later, it Jolly well is all that it's cracked up to be. So I think the same will happen to blockchain, that we will have a period when quite a lot of your critics will say, where's the beef? You know, uh, why aren't you um, writing contracts in space and uh, launching currencies to compete with uh, sovereign ones and so on? Uh, but then there will come a moment when that will happen. And I, as a citizen, will say, look, I don't care what taxes and rules and regs and money you're trying to impose on me in the UK. Uh, I'm not a citizen of the UK anymore. I'm a citizen of the cloud or something like that. Um, uh, again, I've, I've gone a little far-fetched there, but you get <laughs> Yeah, no, and I, and I think that the what you're actually getting at too is that one of the reasons that I think blockchain as a, as a concept, as an industry has attracted a lot of people is that there's a, a larger sense, uh, a, an imperative towards uh, decentralization, towards trying to uncouple or decouple from uh, systems of power that exist and try to do things in a way that isn't command and control, that isn't organized. And I think blockchain, as a, it fits easy from a narrative perspective with that. But I think that the impulse might be something a little bit larger than the technology category, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, no, I, th I think you're dead right. I think that there, there is a philosophical point here, and it, it's there in the you know in the manifestos of the cypherpunks that that preceded blockchain. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's very clear that these are radical libertarians, um, and you know these. It's the same mentality behind the launch of the internet, actually, um, which. I mean, I've just been reading up on this. I don't really have this in the book, but I, I hadn't really twigged the extent to which there was a rival command and control government-directed version of the internet called the OSI, which was uh, being negotiated at a high level in more and more sort of United Nations sort of way with people arguing over commas in in rules and regulations, uh, and which just kept getting more and more unwieldy. And instead, a sort of bottom-up, um, anarchic free-for-all developed around the TCIP protocols, which launched the internet. So um, uh, I, I do think that um, um, the, the the spontaneous order aspect of innovation is terribly important and is what blockchain is all about. So this actually gets to another really key point about, you know, obviously, uh, governments are in some ways, like well, not just governments, but or not just uh, countrywide governments, national governments, but any sort of regulatory block, be it cities, be it states, be it uh, governments, be it you know regions like the the eurozone, they're all competing in some ways for innovation. And there's different ways they go about it. And I think that this is this is something that's really important to you. It's if we understand and respect innovation as something important, as a as a as a public good in some ways, uh, or a, or a public private hybrid good. Um, what are the right ways, and what are the wrong ways for uh for for people to sort of incentivize innovation yeah well um i run through some some of the things that innovation needs if it's to flourish and one of the things it likes is fragmented government governance it doesn't do well in empires there isn't that much innovation in most empires um, it does well in city states uh, it particularly likes small fragmented um continents where you can move from one uh, regime to another. Uh, America is a good example of that today. Elon Musk was threatening to leave California for Texas the other day because he didn't like the rules and regs in California. That's exactly what Gutenberg did 500 years ago in um, uh, Central Europe. So um, that's quite an important uh, feature, uh, I think, of, of innovation. I'm also very skeptical about intellectual property. I think the patent and copyright systems that we have erected are far too restrictive, far too uh, easily turned into um, barriers to entry against competitors, which actually slow down innovation rather than speed it up. And I think the evidence for that is getting clearer by the day. Uh, and where you've got uh, strengthened uh, intellectual property systems, you don't get more innovation. And where you've got weakened ones, like, for example, in the development of streaming music, um, Napster and so on, uh, you don't get less innovation. So uh, I think the the way we've, we've gone about making intellectual property so restrictive has actually become a problem. And we, we, we see when we um, when a patent expires, we get a burst of innovation. Um, so there are there are quite a few things that 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 are being done by governments today that don't help. The other thing, of course, is subsidies, grants, and and winner picking. You know, governments love saying this is the innovation we would like to champion. We're going to give it a grant. Um, we're going to open its headquarters with a fanfare. Um, 
uh, and we're going to subsidize its products. Uh, and often governments are terrible at picking the right technologies and they end up subsidizing dead ends again and again and again. Uh, and they don't keep an open mind about which of, of different rival technologies will, will reach a goal. So I'd like to see governments dangling prizes in front of innovators more than uh, either patents or uh, research grants or subsidies. Um, because you, if, you, if you hang a prize out and say, look, the first person to get a vaccine for COVID-19 um, will get a prize. Um, it needn't be a lump sum. It can be in the form of a, a market commitment uh, or something like that. Uh, so you, you're actually agreeing to subsidize the price at which it's supplied to the market so that the, the, the company has actually got to go and deliver it to the market. The Gates Foundation has done this with the pneumococcus vaccine, a good example of, of that. So I do think that some that innovation policy is at the moment very misguided. It thinks in much too creationist a way, much too top-down uh, a way about the way innovation works. How much did your research on how innovation works shape your views on Brexit, if at all? <laughs> well, um, uh, it's actually the big reason why I'm pro-Brexit. Um, was because I could see how the European Union was stifling innovation. It's no accident that Europe has been unable to spawn any digital giants to rival Amazon, Facebook, Google, and so on. Um, uh, it just can't get a digital uh, industry going to the same extent as uh, both America and China can. Uh, it's had exactly the same problem in biotechnology, particularly in agricultural biotechnology, where it's cut itself off from a whole technology um, by uh, sort of not uh, banning it, but by having regulators that take so long to take a decision that they, they don't end up doing so. Um, and uh, the, the, the one-size-fits-all policy of the European Union misunderstands how innovation works. Innovation has to have differences. So that, uh, you know, if, if you say, as we do in trade agreements, what is good enough for you is good enough for me. If you, if you think this product is safe, then we'll agree it's safe too. Um, we like the way you go about doing it. It's not the same way we go about doing it, but at least you've, you've decided this product is safe. So you can sell it in, in our market. That's what trade is all about. European Union takes a completely different approach. It says, no, the rules must be exactly the same everywhere. We want to harmonize everything. Now, the problem with that is that you can't then do experiments. You can't say, hmm, the Bulgarians are actually doing a better job of satisfying this consumer need more cheaply and more effectively uh, because everybody's doing the same thing everywhere. Um, uh, and so that the more I looked at it, the more I realized that this was a central flaw in the way the European Union was building its empire. And I use that word empire advisedly. Um, Guy Verhofstadt, the lead advisor on Brexit in the European Parliament, uh, uses that word. He says, yes, we are trying to build an empire. That's what we're trying to do. And we from Britain had a look at this and said, this doesn't end well. When Napoleon tried it, when Charles V tried it, when uh, the Emperor Augustus tried it, when Hitler tried it, we went along with it for a while and then realized that actually that's not the way the world should work. Uh, we want to be an outward-looking, 
trading nation connected with the world. We're much more dependent on trade with the rest of the world than the other European countries, for example. Um, and we said, look, please, will you reform in a more innovative direction? And they said, no, we don't want to reform. So we said, right, well, in that case, we'd like to leave if you don't mind. It's interesting to see that, I mean, there's so many numerous examples, but where uh, even policy that one could, if you took off your cynical cap for a moment, could say it was well-intentioned, like GDPR, ends up having this absolutely crushing impact on innovation because of the cost of compliance, right? Cost of regulatory compliance benefits the incumbents more than anyone else, right? Very good example of that, because uh, if you look at who has been able to cope with GDPR, it's the big companies. Yeah, um, Facebook and Google. Facebook and Google can can afford the compliance departments that, that enforce GDPR. I mean, every now and then I come across a website that won't let me read its stuff because it's not in the EU and it, it knows I'm from the EU and it says that we just can't afford to deal with GDPR. That's not true. Big, big. So there's been a clear move. If you look at sort of website traffic, there's been a clear move within the European Union towards the bigger companies capturing more of the market, particularly if you, if you look at ad, ad, advertising share, for example. So shifting gears just a little bit, because I, I, I want to bring this back to what was the state of innovation going into COVID-19? And if, where, and how do you see it changing on the other side of this pandemic or, or economic crisis? I guess there's multiple dimensions to it. Yeah, there's both the pandemic crisis and the economic crisis. Uh, I think the pandemic should forcibly have reminded us that we haven't been doing enough innovation. You see this most clearly in the case of vaccines. Vaccine development is a very slow and laborious process that has hardly changed in decades. Sure, there are new ideas about how to do vaccines, but it still takes many months, many years to develop a vaccine. Uh, It's a somewhat slow process, slower than it should be, and it's not that much faster than it was 50 years ago. That's extraordinary when you think how much we understand molecular biology, how much we understand uh, digital technologies, etc. It really is very striking. Why is that? Well, The pharmaceutical industry hasn't been that interested in vaccination because vaccines aren't very profitable. Uh, And on the whole, I think the World Health Organization and other uh, bodies like that have not paid enough attention to it either. World Health Organization said in 2015, the greatest threat to human health in the 21st century is climate change. Well, that may or may not be the case, but it hardly suggests an organization which is paying attention to its day job, which is to stop us catching pandemics. Um, And... uh, in that respect, um, the it's not just vaccines; it's diagnostic tests as well. That you know, a point of care DNA test to tell you what kind of virus you've got could have been developed ten years ago. Why hasn't it? Because on the whole, the regulations that you have to go through to get licensed for such a device take many, many years to reach a decision. Now. An entrepreneur can't wait many, many years. So he goes off and invents a new uh, computer game instead because that's easier. You don't need so much permission. Um, uh, And uh, when you think about it, that is what has slowed down the development of these technologies, the length of time it takes. Because look around you now. We're suddenly finding that it's possible to give these new devices a license in a matter of days or weeks when uh, we need to. So why couldn't we have done that before? So I think we we should come out of this crisis saying um, we must do a better job of encouraging innovation and not taking the technologies we have for granted uh, and not taking the risks we're running for granted. But 
more generally, and back to the economic crisis we face, crises like this, though they are terrible for the world economy, and although they crash investment in new technologies, nonetheless do open up new opportunities. I mean, if you were thinking of starting an airline, it wouldn't be a great moment right now, but it might be a great moment in a year's time when the the uh, uh, economy is getting back to normal and uh, suddenly there are a lot of gaps in the market. Suddenly there are landing slots available and there are new ways of running an airline that haven't been thought and that wouldn't have been able to get a look in against the existing incumbents, but might now do so. And of course, you and I are doing this interview remotely on a technology that I've only just learned how to use. Uh, and as you found out at the beginning, <laughs> haven't learned very well how to use it yet. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, so the opportunities there are surely huge. That we will, that there is now a, a critical mass of people interested in telemedicine, telelawyering, uh, teleaccounting, uh, telemeetings of all different kinds, and that will uh, result in opportunities for innovation. Surely. All right. So. Uh- we are now living through this very troubling time, and you talk about a little bit about the the opportunities that you saw. But you know, what is the rational, optimistic point of view coming off the other side of this crisis? And is it about innovation? The rational, optimistic point of view coming off this crisis is that bad as this crisis is, uh, it won't be nearly as bad as previous pandemics in the past, and it will. Uh, um, it looks like it will pale in comparison with the improvements that poor people in the world in particular have seen in the last decade, where the rate of decline of extreme poverty has been truly extreme. So even if that goes into reverse for a year or two, we will be much better off than we were 10 years ago. And there is every prospect that the process that produces uh, prosperity will resume in the next few years. uh, and that we will therefore claw our way back to, to, to prosperity and progress. It can't be guaranteed, of course. I mean, this might lead to a war. It might lead to a nuclear war. It might com- the, An asteroid might appear. A worse pandemic might appear, and so on. So um, uh, I'm not here to say that everything's going to be perfect. And in, indeed, in The Rational Optimist, I said a lot of things are going to go wrong in the 21st century, including possibly terrible flu pandemics. Um, uh, but nonetheless, the process that inevitably, inexorably grinds human living standards upwards is still there. And it, in, in, an essential part of it is innovation. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. Really enjoyed that. Thank you. We had a few technical difficulties, which are really unfortunate towards the end of the interview, and we had to wrap up a little quickly. There are two more questions that I wanted to discuss with Matt and that hopefully will form the basis for our next conversation on The Breakdown. The first has to do with reconciling the need for innovation and incentivizing innovation with something like the issue of stock buybacks that we've seen. In the book, Matt wrote, a symptom of the disease is that companies are sitting on huge cash piles measured in trillions and multinational firms have become net lenders rather than borrowers because they cannot see ways to invest their money in innovation. Some big pharmaceutical companies may now make more profit from their financial investments than they do from selling drugs. When big companies do spend money, it is often defensively to enforce their patents or protect their market share. Their assets are aging and they are increasingly apt to play safe. This is partly the fault of diffused ownership by pension funds and sovereign wealth funds, 
and the lack of skin in the game that comes with it, which has a tendency to turn entrepreneurs into rentiers, extracting profits from local monopolies achieved through raving barriers to entry via intellectual property, occupational licensing, and government subsidy. The dead hand of corporate managerialism then finds that it is easier to control markets than to contest them, to plan rather than experiment. Of course, many companies still pay lip service to innovation, appointing executives to jobs with the word in the title, and adopting slogans that use the term, but this is often meaningless blather disguising a deep attachment to the status quo. This is Matt talking about innovation famine, which I think is a hugely important topic, especially after what we've just seen and the unbelievable lack of resilience in corporate markets in the wake of this crisis. I think this is all part of a really important story. So that'll be part one of our next conversation whenever it's to happen. Part two, I think, comes to this question of how innovation is about enabling people to work for each other. Matt writes, the chief way in which innovation changes our lives is by enabling people to work for each other. As I have argued before, the main theme of human history is that we become steadily more specialized in what we produce, and steadily more diversified in what we consume. We move away from precarious self-sufficiency to safer mutual interdependence. The question becomes to me, what happens if we stop trusting each other? On a local level, on a national level, whatever the level might be. I think we're in a moment where we're dealing with very contentious issues of globalism and globalization versus localism and localization. And I wonder about Matt's views about how this potentially impacts or threatens innovation. Those are the two questions that we have. It's a great start for a future episode. I know that some of you will be hungry and want Matt to come join again right now to talk about that. But anyways, guys, until then, thank you for listening. I appreciate you hanging out. And so until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other. Peace. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.